with me to 1 John chapter 2. And I will read the chapter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and no, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as this anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this brief passage in 1 John 2, 12-14, we ask you to open our hearts to receive the things that you would teach. Open our eyes to see them, our ears to hear them, our minds to understand them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some commentators look at these verses as a digression. He's giving tests and doctrine, and then all of a sudden he takes this little digression, and then he continues. And they considered it a digression about the church. And while I do think it is about the church, particularly the the invisible church, I don't really consider it a digression. I think it was put here in its place specifically for its purpose. Uh, You have the first two tests about being a believer. Now, do you love God? Then you should be obeying him. Do you love God? Then you should be loving his children, your brothers. If you're not, are you really a believer? Uh, Who can... Say, yes, I love God completely and perfectly, and I love my brother by obeying him completely and perfectly, and I love my brother completely, and I don't hate him, ever. Yeah, I don't think any of us can really say that, and that's why he's now stepping out necessarily to consider those, to apply those to us, and really to our spiritual growth. And I think that's what this passage is teaching us. As he's going to move on to the next test, worldliness, which many uh, many commentators consider a digression, not a test, but I'm going to call it a test, the test of worldliness. And Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Here in verses 12 through 14, he says, I am writing to you. You know, this curious little section, I think, explains his purpose in the test that he's given, the test that he's going to give, and the teachings that he's trying to convey to them. That purpose to encourage those who are really struggling. You know, that those tests are not something we pass perfectly. And the longer we're a Christian, the more clearly we see how many ways we fall short of that especially if we're growing in our knowledge and in our faith. And so this little bit of encouragement is very helpful. And so as we look at it and we read the passage, the first thing we'll notice, unless you're reading in the NIV, is that the tense changes when he repeats. And he starts off three times talking about little children, fathers and brothers, and says in the ESV, he says, I am writing to you. And then he repeats them, children, fathers, young men. I 
The King James says, I have written to you, which is a classic translation of the Greek, standard translation. The ESV has, I write to you, uh, giving a slight interpretation of the tense there, but you get the idea. It's changed slightly. Why does he change tense in the middle? The second part is actually an aorist tense, which is a past tense, but it's also a completed tense. Uh, some people interpret that to mean either a previous letter or the first part of the letter I wrote to you and the second part. The problem with doing that is, though, they basically repeat each themselves. And so that doesn't really work. Uh, more likely, he's showing a, an emphasis. You know, he's said it once and he's saying it again more emphatically to make sure you understand that this is important and that it is true and that you should consider it. And... So I think that's why the tense changes, showing the, the unchangeableness of what he's writing from God. Uh, the second question is, who are fathers, young men, and children? Is it physical age? John Calvin seemed to think so, that each age of man requires a different approach and has a different set of problems. Uh, I would be in agreement more with Augustine, who said it was about spiritual maturity infants in the faith, you know, those who are maturing and growing, young men in the faith, and those who have reached a certain level of maturity in the faith, fathers. And the reason for that is I think it fits better with the content of the passage, as well as with the scripture as a whole. Uh, this is something Paul often talks about. In 1 Corinthians 3, in the first four verses, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's making a distinction between those who are mature and those who are children, infants even. I fed you spiritual milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For where there is jealousy and strife among you, you do, are you not of the flesh? and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not behaving in a merely human way? So in other words, they're not doing very well on the second test because they have strife and jealousy amongst them. And so Paul is calling them to be infants, babies in the Christ. Paul says in, first, or in Colossians 1.28, that we proclaim him, Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You know, the goal is to become mature. And that's one of the reasons John has written this letter is to call people to grow in their faith to maturity. And he's giving them tests to show them how mature they are and doctrines to help them in their maturity as they grow. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14:20 not to be little children in our thinking. Be infants in evil, in other words, not very skilled or useful in evil, but in your thinking be mature, not little children. And that's how I really, John starts off this text. I write to you little children. Now the word there is different than the word down in the next verse. Little children here is a word he uses seven times in 1 John. And Jesus, he quotes Jesus using it in John 13, 33. 
And in every one of those cases, this is a term of endearment used to describe all believers, not just new believers and not just little babies, but the believers in Christ. And I think that's clear when we read his words. I am writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Uh, infants do not have their sins forgiven for his name's sake necessarily, but believers do, and really all believers do, and only believers do. And so this is a term really for of endearment to talking about those who are in Christ, those who have that spirit of adoption and can cry, Abba, Father, as Paul says in Romans 8.15. And so he's, he's, he's addressing this passage to really all believers because their sins are forgiven. Uh, he goes on in the repetition to say, I write to you children. Now this is a different word, and usually it means children, because you know the Father. Now here... He's really talking to believers, but I think he's talking now to those who are infants in Christ, who, who don't know him well, who don't know his requirements well, who are just starting off in the faith, who are babes in the faith. They are forgiven and they know the Father, and so that really goes back to the first test. You know the Father, then you're obeying the Father, but how are they obeying? Well, they're obeying like little children. They don't have a lot of knowledge. They don't have a lot of understanding. But what they do know, what these babes in Christ do know, they're doing. They understand that basic part of the gospel, of the repentance of sins, the turning to Christ, of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They know that part, and they're obeying that part. We all only know in part, as you know, God's wisdom and knowledge is infinite, and the scriptures have lots of things that are hard to understand for us. But the clear things, the necessary things, these children are able to know and then able to obey. And so they are of the Father. They know the Father. Now, Paul addresses these children in Christ a number of places like Ephesians 4:11 and following he says you know that God Christ gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all att attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and so God has given us, as he says here, apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the purpose of taking us from little children when we first believe to mature adults. And little children here, I've met people who were, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s when they believed. It just means they don't know much yet. And there's a method to bring them to knowledge, and that is to be instructed in the things of the Lord. And he goes on in Ephesians 4 to say, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now this reminds us a bit of Jude, but also of Scripture as a whole. If we don't know God's word, we can be deceived. Often, like when I went to buy my first car, you know, the car salesman knew I didn't know a lot about buying cars. And so he was pretty slick. Of course, I had done my research and he was surprised. And in the end, it all worked out. But they're going to try and deceive you. And in the world, they will try to deceive you. He talks about this more when you get down further in chapter 2 about the Antichrists that have come that are trying to deceive you to lead you away from Christ. So we want no longer to be little children But he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, unto Christ. And so we are to grow in our faith, in our knowledge, our understanding, so that we may be mature in part, so that we will not be deceived, we will not be led astray, but also so that we can glorify God and obey him more and draw nearer to him and have that wonderful relationship more and more with him. And how do we do that? Well, we've talked about this in the past. In order not to be blown about by every wind of doctrine, we need to know right doctrine. And Isaiah says, to the teaching and to the testimony, Isaiah 8.20, if they don't speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light of dawn, no, no Christ, no knowledge of God. And so we can go to the scriptures and know what is right, what is wrong, and whether the teaching we hear is right or whether it is wrong. Through that knowledge, we can somehow grow up. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, those are all things that are part of the second test. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, milk that comes from the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And so we need to grow up at least into young men and eventually into maturity, into adults, into fathers. The child's knowledge is small and his obedience is small, but it's enough if he obeys that part of the will of God that he can understand, that he has been given, that is in the gospel. And that will fill him with then a desire to know God better, to know God more, to be more pleasing to God, and he will continue to grow up. Now it's interesting, talking about children, he next talks about not young men, but fathers. Why does he jump to fathers? Well, that's really, I think, the goal. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Note in verse 14, the only thing that changes is the tense of the writing. Same exact words. Now, we know that the first test is to know God, and all Christians have to know God or they're not Christians. Uh, That's just fundamental to this this doctrine, and we know God. We know we know God because we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, 3. Uh, The fathers here are those who have grown really from that infancy in Christ when they first believed 
through many hard battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they've grown in their knowledge. They've grown in their wisdom. They've grown in their understanding of God and of Scripture to spiritual maturity. Now, here are those who know him from the beginning. They know God as he has fully revealed to them. All his immutable glory is represented in the word. And they've become fully mature in both their knowledge and their practice. Now, this doesn't mean they become perfect because John has already laid the foundation for that. If you say you do not sin or you have no sin, you don't know God. And so if they were to claim perfection, you would know immediately they're not a Christian. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they've matured in that knowledge and in that faith to the level where they really are mature in the faith. They know God from beginning to end. They know what he has revealed. And they obey it. It's not just knowledge, but it's practice also. They know God. And to be a father requires that they be matured to that point, really, that they could work as an elder. You know, what is the goal of a man's life in faith, but to be of a level of maturity that an elder would have? If we look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and following, I want to read this. It's a little long, these two passages I'm going to read. But when we think about what is a mature Christian, what does he look like for a man? And there are things in here that also apply to women. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, talking to Titus, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, not somebody who's divorced and remarried, Children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward. It must be above reproach. Must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. Now, those are pretty standard sins in the Bible, but there must be none of that in the mature Christian, the elder's life. Must be hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All of the positive things were taught throughout Scripture God expects of believers. Both men and women should aspire to all of those things. He must, heard, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So his knowledge of God through the word must be complete. Not necessarily perfect, but full of that knowledge and able to use it. It says, for there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. For they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So in the qualifications for an elder, we have the qualifications for really a mature Christian And some of it applies to both men and women. Arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy. Those are tendencies that are not acceptable in a mature Christian. Those show us that we haven't grown very far in our faith. Uh, Lover of good, hospitable, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, 
Those are the things we need to work on building in our lives and in our practice. And so that model is good for the mature Christian, both men and women. Uh, women, there's some extra special instructions in the Bible of things that can help them because we understand, particularly in the New Testament, women are supposed to be in submission to their husband. What does that look like? You know, there's the barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen camp, which has nothing to do with scripture. Uh, what does a good woman look like in scripture? Proverbs 31 woman. I want to read this one too, because it's a bit long, but I want us to have that, that image of what a mature Christian should look like. Proverbs 31.10 and following. An excellent wife or woman, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Any man who has one knows the truth of that. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And so being trustworthy. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And then it goes on to talk about how profitable her life is. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She raises, rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong, and she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So being hardworking, and not just hardworking, but profitable. I remember one of my fellow students once complained very bitterly that I study harder than you do. How come I don't get better grades than you? It's not fair. Uh, it's not about how hard you work or how many hours you work. It's about how effective you work with wisdom and knowledge and understanding and diligence. This woman has made herself profitable. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out to the hands of the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Now here we get into her preparations for the future, for her home. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. There's an old saying that behind every great man is a great woman. Well, there's truth to that biblically. A woman who is a good wife and a good supporter can help the man achieve far greater honor and far more, far more than if he were alone. The two should be more profitable than one. Uh, a lot of times in married couples, even within the church, the opposite is true. Being married means neither one of them accomplish as much as they used to because they don't work cooperatively the way God has set for them to work. You know, if we work our tasks that God has assigned to us in marriage, in life, then we will achieve far greater things together than we ever could alone. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant, strength and dignity over her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. The meaning there being that she has prepared her family for the future. 
They don't need to worry about the snows coming and not having warm clothes to wear. Uh, they don't need to struggle with the future because God has blessed her hands and her labors and she has enough for her family. And the next one, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. We find in scriptures that women are assigned to teach the children, to teach mature women, the mothers in the faith, if you like, to teach the younger women and in the ways of scripture and in the ways of building up their home and building up their marriage and making it a blessing before the Lord. And so she should be able to teach with kindness and wisdom. She looks to the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Uh, the, la the next one is even harder. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Now, the women's work of raising children is really neglected in this day and age. But particularly with homeschool moms, you really see that the way it was in Bible times, where the man is off working and the mother has responsibility for raising and training the children and teaching them. And do they curse her in bitterness? Or do they praise her and call her blessed? I'm thankful I have a mother like this who is raising me right and is helping me learn and helping me grow. And the husband also will praise her. Men, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now the fears of the Lord here really involves her doing her part, the tasks that God has assigned her. Anyway, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You want to be praised by men and by God, fulfill our obligations. And so there we have views of what it means really to be a mature believer. And this should be our goal. Maturity in, in faith and in practice should be one of the great goals in our life. I remember you know, doing the uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People training course. And one of them was, you know, you need to set your goals. And your manager would review them. So obviously the goals were about the company and about our future. But in reality, in life, we really need to begin with the end in mind, as, he, as Covey says, to have our goals and our purposes in mind. And what is our goal in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the greatest praise we can have in life? Well done, my good and faithful sir, from, from the Lord. And so our maturity in our faith, becoming fathers or mothers, if the case may be, should be that great goal in our life. Paul speaks of this. And again, I want to read a longer passage because I want us to consider these things. He says in Philippians 3, 8 through 16, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I count I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What did he give up? The world. Right? He would have been a Jewish scholar. He would have had his own school. He would have had people who serve him. 
He would have been honored and respected in Israel if he had continued the path of the rabbi. But instead, he forsook it all for Christ, which is better, worldly gain, worldly place, worldly purposes, or to serve God. He said, all those other things I could have had were rubbish. So instead of having a nice home and servants to take care of him, he's wandering the the wilderness, shipwrecked in the sea, endangered by bandits, hunger, thirst, cold, heat. He says, I I count the good things rubbish and suffered the loss of all of it, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which as a Pharisee he considered his obedience to the law to be perfect, but now he considers that to be rubbish. That righteousness is no good. Now he has a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says that I may be known in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect. We know perfection, even from John's letter, is impossible. If we claim to be perfect, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. It says, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. So what does a mature Christian do? They consider the things of this world, which is the next passage he's going to go into, John is going to go into, consider them rubbish, And they take hold of the things of faith and press on towards glorifying God. Uh, And the ideas of 1 John of loving God by obeying him, of loving our brother sacrificially if needed, which Paul demonstrated throughout his ministry. I press on towards that goal. And that's how all the mature should think. God, If you think otherwise in anything, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And we have obtained a place in Christ, a calling in Christ. And that calling involves us becoming mature adults. And then he writes, John writes, I write to you young men. I think that's those who lie in between the infants in Christ and the mature in Christ. You don't go from one to the other in a day. You don't decide, and today I'm going to have the second blessing and commit myself to the Lord again, and I'll become perfect. Now, maturity is something that we struggle for and grow for throughout our entire life. And, of course, even the fathers of the faith (coughs) have not escaped that struggle. We all start off with that tiny little knowledge of Christ as a babe in Christ, just the basics of the gospel, trusting in him for our salvation, understanding that the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin, John, 1 John 1, 7. You know, that's where we all start, but we can't stop there. 
Our first obedience is to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation as he is revealed to us in the scripture. But going on from there, we have a new life. We've looked at the Ezekiel 36 passage many times, but I want to remind you again, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, the promise of the New Testament, the new covenant, what it means to be born again. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the key I want you to think about. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And if we have truly been born again, our obedience to Christ does not stop at the basics of the gospel, but will move forward from them, not because that earns us anything, but because we have a new heart, we're going to move in a new direction. And that's one of the easiest ways to tell if somebody's profession of faith has any credibility, if they are not living a new life in Christ, if they are not endeavoring after a new obedience, as our standards, Westminster standards refer to it, then there's great doubt of their profession. And if we see that new life in them, then it starts to become apparent. I remember reading a story once about a village pastor in England, back in the days when the village had one pastor and he covered all the people. You know, there were no choices of what kind of church you wanted. Anyway, a young maid had been saved, professed Christ, weeping and glorifying God. And the pastor wanted to go visit her during the week. And he got to the mansion she worked in and was talking to the mistress of the house and asked her if she noticed anything strange or different. She says, well, it's never been done before in the entire time we've lived here. But she went to the doors to the great room and closed them so she could clean behind the doors. And nobody ever closes the doors, so they've never been cleaned behind and it's not necessary. And so he asked the girl about that and he says, well, God knows that it's dirty back there and that my job is to clean. And so I'm going to clean everything for God, not just what the owner thinks is necessary. There was evidence that she, she had become a different person. In her practical life where nobody would know and nobody would notice and nobody would care but God. So the question becomes, though, if we are to obey God's rules... How do we know them? How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119, which is all about the scriptures, verses 9 and 10. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it. With my whole heart I seek you, the psalmist says. Let me not wander from your commandments. And so how do we grow in our faith? In our practice, it starts with knowing what God wants. You know, if you don't know what God wants, how are you going to achieve it? If you have that wrong presupposition, if you think your car runs on diesel and you buy a lot of diesel fuel 
and you have a gasoline car, it's not going to help. Right? If you if you think God wants one thing, what your friends say, what you hear, what society says, and you want to be that person, and that's not what God wants, you'll figure it out eventually. Probably standing before him, if not sooner. According to God's word. So that's the first step. To be able to obey God, you have to know what he wants you to do. Uh, What's the next step? Well, be watchful, be careful, be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5, 8-11. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Excuse me. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And so the second thing, to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to make sure you really are going to do what you're doing and you don't get trapped in the devil's schemes. And we need strength to do this. Notice he says, and this time when he reiterates, he says, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So when he reiterates that he mentions both strength and the word abiding. And so first the word abiding and now the strength. Ephesians 6, 10 and following. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Our strength is not strength of the flesh, but spiritual strength that comes from the armor of God. It is not something that is in us. It is something that comes from the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wow. The devil and his angels and all the darkness that they have brought into the world. And we'll be looking at the world, Lord willing, next week, uh, the world next week. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and put on the belt, the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so when we are fully armored in our faith, in our life, our practice with the word, then we have the strength to stand. Then we will grow. If we are not doing all of these things, if we're not making use of the word of God to know what God wants, prayer for the strength of God, you know, our faith, our fellowship, then we will not grow. Of course, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we find more and more reasons to praise, honor, and love him. But we also see more clearly 
what he wants from us. And as we see more clearly what he wants for us, we see our shortcomings. How far short of the glory of God and the honor of God we have fallen. And it tends to be true the more mature a Christian is, the more time they spend in repentance and confession and the more time they spend in prayer and in weeping and in tears before the Lord. The maturer the Christian, the more they feel their inadequacies. And that's taken into account here. You know, when we apply these tests to ourselves, we see our shortcomings. The new believer may think he's doing great. I remember when I first became a Christian, I struggled to read the Psalms because they seemed so depressing about sin all the time. And it's like, but I'm a believer now. I haven't been doing any of those sinful things I used to do. Uh, as you mature in your faith and gain an experience, you, you find out that's not really true. But that's why God has reminded us of the promise. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, being a mature Christian isn't so much about being sinless, but it's about knowing our sins and repenting of our sins and praying for the remission of our sins. Now, we, we know what a mature Christian should look like because we have the test John has given us. We have the scripture as a whole to tell us. And as we want to grow, if our goal really is to glorify God, to become a fully mature Christian, to receive that well done, my good and faithful servant from the Lord when we meet him, then we need to know his word and we need to struggle to be obedient to his word. We need to know our brothers and struggle to love them. And we will see even more tests coming up, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the words of encouragement that he has given us here, that we really have overcome the evil one. We have knowledge of you. We have strength in you that comes to us from your word, which abides in us. And we pray that we would make diligent use of your word, of the throne of grace in our prayers, of our brothers, of our churches, that we might, Lord, grow day by day in our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.